Previously on Heavy Metal Historian, we studied the influence of historic figures and events on metal and explored the spirit of metal, as well as the origins, rise, and future of thrash metal, shock rock, punk, and other metal styles. Now, we return to our continuing examination of progressive music, as the ancestries began spawning the bands that would be the heralds of progressive rock. From the development of Pink Floyd in the 1970s, to key essential bands from the era such as Genesis and Yes, to Rush leading the growth of progressive metal, we turn back time to investigate why prog was so important to the evolution of rock and metal during the era and into the future. We investigate the rise of progressive rock. Welcome to episode 19. I'm Greg Davies, your heavy metal historian. As we have mentioned on previous editions of this podcast, for many progressive music can be somewhat of an acquired taste, but in spite of this, progressive works stay incredibly popular to this day and have a long history, stemming from ideas in philosophy and literature and in classical and experimental music. In fact, as we highlighted on our previous prog chapter, the concept of a progressive style of music has probably been around since the inception of music itself. And for metalheads, the genre known as progressive metal keeps growing to be increasingly popular as time has moved on, from the pioneering works of Rush bridging the gap between prog rock and prog metal, to the emergence of artists like Tool, Mastodon, Carnival, Dream Theater, and more, what we know of today as progressive metal has a rich future ahead of it. For a lot of these bands, the true origins of their styles came from the emergence and rise of progressive rock in the 1970s, and for many fans, there's a separation of understanding here. Some find it hard to believe that the experimental atmospheric passages with flutes and orchestration of the likes of Emerson, Lake and Palmer or Genesis, for example, had any impact on heavy metal at all. But it did. And actually, the efforts of the first wave of progressive rock bands were instrumental in the eventual rise of prog metal. Unlike most subgenres, where bands are likely to merge elements of core genres relevant to them into a new sound, progressive metal was the logical next step from the prog rock of the 70s. While there was a merging of prog sensibilities with the sonic punch of metal, it's fair to say that if it was not for the likes of King Crimson or Pink Floyd, we wouldn't have groups like Queensryche or Meshuga today. So, before we can dive in to explore the importance of progressive metal, we're going to have to learn a bit more about the original rise of progressive rock. Who were these pioneering bands that developed this complex but rich and ambient sound? And why were they and their music so inspirational to the next generation that would carry the baton into the world of heavy metal? The emergence of progressive rock came from a vast range of sources, not least of which was the music of the 1950s and 1960s. Psychedelica was on the rise, and experimental avant-garde music by the likes of Captain Beefheart, Frank Zappa, and the early Alice Cooper band were premonitions that things were changing. And also, the Beatles reinvigorated progressive creativity with the release of Sgt. Pepper's, arguably the scene's first concept album.
But imaginably, the motivating factor behind the appearance of progressive rock was that it was a direct musical response to how monotonous and cyclical pop music had become. What was popular had become a repetition, trudging through identical frameworks of verse, chorus, verse, chorus, and so on. Guitar solos, bridges, and releases helped to add some variety, but for the most part, the infrastructure was the same. The performers of the emerging prog movement wanted to break free of this and were inspired by the experimental works by the likes of Zappa, as well as the important foundations established by the Beatles and the Beach Boys. Another factor in the rise of the genre was the technical expertise of the musicians. While some of the progressive rockers were self-taught, many were actually classically trained and educated and desired to somehow combine the technicalities they learned with the rock music they loved. Soon, these musicians would eventually explore the music they wanted to create, reintroducing techniques like finger tapping, building on technical atmospheric passages, and constructing music built around complex time changes. Following in the steps of the Beatles and the Beach Boys, The Who would advance beyond their mod rock roots that would be hugely inspirational to the future punk movement, and ironically enough, move into a new chapter that would stimulate the rise of prog. Taking on the storylines of Tommy and much later Quadrophenia, The Who would push the boundaries of concept albums, further persuading the generation of progressive rock. Likewise, two bands from the original Big Four of heavy metal would also contribute to the advance of progressive heights as well. While Blue Cheer and Black Sabbath supported the rock and roll end of the spectrum, the more esoteric explorations of Led Zeppelin and the proto-power of Deep Purple would position important groundwork for the coming popularity of prog. As philosophy, literature, classical music, jazz, experimental avant-garde musings, and the existing rock of the era began framing the outlook and perspective of the coming progressive music, the musicians themselves began framing their own ideas. The songs they would make would push boundaries, but more importantly, attempt to progress music forward, incorporating all shades of the spectrum, including the more obscure, mysterious sides. After the psychedelica and experimental phase of the 1960s, it would be Pink Floyd that would bridge the gap between psychedelic rock and progressive rock. Following their groundbreaking work on the 1971 album Metal, the band went on to work on one of the most essential albums of their entire career. Now led by Roger Waters, the group began transitioning into building upon their previous experimentations and embraced the idea of a concept album. Loosely built together on several similar concepts and outlooks, the development of the classic album Dark Side of the Moon would cement the band into the history of rock, making them one of the most influential groups of the century. Oh, 
There are many fables and rumours surrounding this album, including that old chestnut about the album being synchronised with The Wizard of Oz, but one of the oft-forgotten realities of Dark Side of the Moon is how innovative it was for its synthesizer and keyboard work. Rick Wright, pianist and keyboardist for Pink Floyd, assembled an incredible repertoire of skills from the inception of the band, right through to his breathtaking keyboard work on the song Echoes from 1971. But on Dark Side of the Moon, Wright broke new ground with the experimental synthesizer work that many prog acts would follow up on and attempt to recreate or imitate. It's often easy to forget how problematical this process was. In this day and age, we have preset sounds on modern synthesizers or just run a few filters on a computer program. But in those days, Rick Wright spent hours and days and sometimes even weeks building and modifying his own equipment, experimenting with vast settings and electronics, and engineering specific sounds for the album. What in 2015 might take you a couple of minutes, in 1973 took Rick Wright weeks or months to accomplish the precise sound that he and the band needed. This is part of the reason why Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon is still regarded as one of the most significant breakthroughs in history. Likewise, attempting the fusion of sounds with experimentations were the Moody Blues, by the time of the Dark Side of the Moon in 1973, the Moody Blues were already on their own prog track, but for them, this began actually back in 1967 on the album Days of Future Past. Also a concept album, the release forged orchestral works with strains of traditional rock and spawned the classic and unforgettable song Nights in White Satin. Nights in White Satin Never reaching the end Letters I've written Never meaning to send Beauty I'd always miss With these eyes before Just what the truth is I can't say anymore Cause I love you but while Days of Future Past was a foretaste of the prog to come and Dark Side of the Moon signaled a transition to the consolidation of Progressive, if there was a band that would be one of the most rousing and the epicenter of Progressive Rock to come, it was Genesis. Formed in 1967 as an experiment with pop music, founding members Mike Rutherford, Tony Banks, Peter Gabriel, Anthony Phillips and Phil Collins would change into a band that would explore some of the most complex song structures ever heard. Like Pink Floyd, Genesis would smash the conception of the traditional two to four minute song. By 1971, the band would be joined by guitarist Steve Hackett, who would assist them in pushing beyond all of the peripheries. With the release of albums like Nursery Crime, The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway, and Selling England by the Pound in the early 70s, Genesis were established as one of the most important bands responsible for founding and unleashing progressive rock.
Though the life of Genesis has lasted across six decades, some of the individual members of the group also moved forward into avenues of their own. Drummer Phil Collins would experience a lengthy and successful pop career, though the closest to prog he would come to in his solo work was the song In the Air Tonight. Peter Gabriel, on the other hand, similarly had a lengthy solo career, but remained successful with more experimental and artsy music, as shown by releasing his first four solo albums as self-titled, refusing to give them titles so as to make the music stand alone. His most popular period came from the 1986 album So, which featured songs like Big Time and a duet with Kate Bush called Don't Give Up. But the most successful and memorable song from Gabriel's So album would be the sexually infused Sledgehammer. Peter Gabriel enjoyed successful solo careers, perhaps the most interesting and exploratory career post-Genesis was that of Steve Hackett's. Initially beginning his solo career in the same vein of progressive rock, Hackett would later explore a wide range of other musical styles to incorporate into his own playing, including that of world music. Hackett's most successful release was his 1980 solo album Defector, which contained the singles The Show and Sentimental Institution. He continued his long exploratory solo career, and then in 2012, Hackett joined forces with a well-known bassist called Chris Squire, releasing an album called A Life Within a Day, mashing up their surnames into a band name to create the epic masterpiece known as Squacket.
In Squacket, that famous bassist Chris Squire also originated from another band that would be incredibly important to the early formation of progressive rock. Yes, Squire joined forces with John Anderson, Peter Banks, Tony Kaye and Bill Bruford in 1968 releasing two records that were somewhat proto-prog. But by 1971, the band released the Yes album, an album release that would be considered the beginning of the most imaginative peak in their career, and one that, like with the works of the Moody Blues, Pink Floyd and Genesis, would cement progressive rock as here to stay. Keyboardist Rick Wakeman joined the group that same year, and the group followed up over the next few years with several albums still considered to be classics to this day, such as Close to the Edge, Tales from Topographic Oceans, and Fragile. After moving off from Yes in 1978, Rick Wakeman would move forward with a fruitful solo career, exploring further progressive and experimental works, and also being one of the forefathers of expanding the ambient style like his contemporary Brian Eno. Wakeman explored concept albums throughout his career and would later work with his son Adam on projects named as Wakeman and Wakeman. But Rick's most notable accomplishment as a solo artist would be his 1974 concept LP interpretation of Jules Verne's Journey to the Center of the Earth. His ambition too costly to become a studio project, the recording of the album occurred as a live show, complete with narration, orchestral arrangements, and vast experimental synthesizer work. The album is largely regarded as Wakeman's greatest accomplishment, but also as an incredible stepping stone in the era of progressive rock.
Wakeman's fascination with Jules Verne would be eye-opening to another musician by the name of Jeff Wayne. Wayne's fascination in sci-fi was bent towards one of Verne's contemporaries, namely H.G. Wells, and his classic 1897 alien invasion novel, The War of the Worlds. Combining blues rock with disco with metal and orchestration into a basis of progressive rock, Jeff Wayne recorded his musical version of War of the Worlds in 1979 with vocal guests like Phil Lynott from Thin Lizzy, becoming one of the most memorable progressive achievements at the end of the decade. Jeff Wayne's War of the Worlds was a bestseller and has since spawned into a theatrical music show, video game, and much more. In 2012, Jeff Wayne released a reimagining of his War of the Worlds, subtitling it The New Generation. Keeping the strong progressive basics, Wayne incorporated new technologies to accomplish elements considered impossible in 1979. While the score remained the same, the new recording is one of the few examples where a new version stands up next to the legacy of the original without diminishing its qualities. Additionally, Jeff Wayne's new generation of War of the Worlds features Liam Neeson as the narrating journalist. And with Qui-Gon Jinn, a.k.a. Raz al Ghul, on your side, what the hell could go wrong? No one would have believed in the last years of the 19th century that human affairs were being watched by intelligences which inhabited the timeless worlds of space. No one could have dreamed we were being scrutinized as someone with a microscope studies creatures that swarm and multiply in a drop of water. Few men even considered the possibility of life on other planets. And yet, across the gulf of space, minds immeasurably superior to ours regarded this Earth with envious eyes and slowly and surely, they drew their plans against us. Another band that would prove to be significant in the development of the 1970s prog rock was Jethro Tull. Led by vocalist and flautist Ian Anderson, the group formed in 1967, beginning with a blues rock feel, eventually merging elements of folk music that would evolve into part of the progressive movement. By 1971, their shift to prog was evident when Jethro Tull released Aqualung. However, in 1972, their key signature album was released, a concept album consisting of one single song split in half to fit across two sides of a vinyl record. Thick as a Brick would turn out to be the group's most significant album release and become a defining moment for them. Really don't mind if you sit this one out My words but a whisper, deafness, a shout I may make you feel that I can't make you think Your sperm's in the gutter, 
he loves in the sink So you ride yourselves over the fields And you make all your animal deals And your wise men don't know how it feels To be thick as a brick And castle virtues are all swept away In the tidal destruction, the moral malaise The elastic retreat rings the close of play As the last wave uncovers the new fangled way But your new shoes are worn at the heels And your suntan was rapidly peeled And your wise men don't know how it feels To be thick as a brick Jethro Tull enjoyed a lengthy career right through into the 80s when their music would stir controversy in the metal world. The National Academy of Recording Arts and Sciences created a specific award in 1989 for the category Best Hard Rock Metal Performance Vocal or Instrumental in the Grammys. Metallica on the ascent to success with the release of And Justice For All were expected to win the award, but it was won by Jethro Tull for Crest of a Knave. The result was a slew of hostile responses, not only from fans, but also critics, claiming the Academy was completely out of touch. While Jethro Tull's 70s progressive rock most certainly inspired metal, even Ian Anderson was taken aback by the nomination and the win. In the face of controversy, though, Tull continued into the 2010s, disbanding in 2011. Ian Anderson, on the other hand, also enjoyed a mildly successful solo career during Jethro Tull's life, even recording a sequel to his band's most famous album in 2012, continuing the story of Gerald Bostock with Thick as a Brick 2.
One of the most underrated groups from the progressive rock era was Van der Graaff Generator. Formed by Peter Hamill and Chris Judge Smith in 1967, the band began experimentations with blues and jazz, but infusing the shock rock styles of Arthur Brown they were so influenced by. As time progressed, the group began incorporating effects and electronics as well as brass into their gamut. In the spirit of Rick Wright from Pink Floyd, keyboardist Hugh Branton played a Hammond organ that he had highly modified with a vast array of electronics that fashioned the group's sound into the more progressive vein. While the success in their home country was mild, they were a smash success in Italy, giving massive inspiration to a future generation of prog musicians to ascend from that country in the years that would follow. significant groups to emerge from prog rock that would be a monstrous influence on heavy metal was King Crimson. By the release of their debut album in the court of the Crimson King under the guidance of Robert Fripp, King Crimson would consolidate and perfect the concept of progressive rock as a genre with this release. Not only would it be a cataclysmic album release for the prog scene as a whole, it would also prove to be one of the most influential albums to all music that would follow. King Crimson would trek from various ends of the spectrums to others in terms of their musicality on their later albums. Fripp's experimentations with looping would become pioneering work that would influence many future electronica, industrial and dance works. The band would tinker with all styles of music to explore possibilities of what King Crimson was and could be releasing classic records like In the Wake of Poseidon, Lizard, and Lark's Tongues in Aspic. The group would push further ground into the 2000s with albums like Construction of Light and The Power to Believe.
One of the other giants of prog due to their massive commercial success was Emerson, Lake and Palmer. Dominated by keys in the form of organs, piano and synthesizers, ELP were profoundly influenced by classical music as evidenced by their very successful live adaptation of Mazorkski's pictures at an exhibition and their 1971 studio album, Tarkus. Going for even further sophistication with their complexity was the band Gentle Giant. Unique in the fact that nearly all of the band members were multi-instrumentalists, Gentle Giant were founded in 1970 when prog rock was already on the rise. Regarded as one of the most experimental of the prog bands, the group was considered to be ahead of its time and has since developed a huge cult following on the internet, including with fans online at websites like 4chan and Reddit. Comparably to King Crimson, prog rockers Hawkwind would also have a colossal influence on heavy metal. Though their music would be mainly of note to the future of prog metal bands, Hawkwind's legacy lay in one of their band members deciding to leave during the 1970s and end up devising a new band that would be one of the most prominent of all time across rock and roll, hard rock, heavy metal and punk. That bass guitarist was Lemmy Kilmister and his post-Hawkwind venture became known as Motorhead. Similarly arising in the early 70s as prog was on the rise, a flamboyant but crisp sounding band emerged in Birmingham with a desire to merge their favourite pop rock genres with classical music. What they initially termed as symphonic rock would have an incredible legacy to come both in the worlds of rock and metal, but would also be initially denoted as prog light, a label that would have major consequence for prog rock bands down the line. Formed by Jeff Lynne, the band was Electric Light Orchestra, otherwise known as ELO. You got me running, going out of my mind. You got me 
1970s moved forward, progressive rock not only overshadowed the popular music scene, but it became far bigger and more cumbersome, and also far more acceptable. The band Camel, another group to have a cult following on 4chan.org, featured songs close to 10 minutes long on their debut and second album Mirage. Meanwhile, multi-instrumentalist Mike Oldfield released Tubular Bells, theoretically one song split across two sides of a record, and so successful that it became the theme song of the famous horror movie The Exorcist. However, things were starting to shift away from the overblown complexities. Before bands like Marillion would rise to push progressive rock into the 1980s, pop bands were beginning to follow suit, incorporating prog elements into their sound. Even hard rockers Queen began integrating some of the essential prog components into their music, pushing for more of a rock opera balance that would become their key identifiable sound with the release of the song Bohemian Rhapsody. The transferal of prog into pop began to influence the original prog rock founders. While Pink Floyd soldiered on and ventured into deep concept album territory with Animals and the Wall, the other bands began gravitating away from the lengthy complexities of their creative primes and began focusing their energies into shorter, more commercially appealing music. Genesis went directly to the pop persuasion with their 1980 album Duke and continued to do so even in 1991 with the number one song I Can't Dance. The Moody Blues, ELP and Jethro Tull also moved into more pop territory, straying close to that prog light sound. By the end of the decade and into the 1980s, what ELO had begun with prog light had encased the founders of the original scene, and by 1982, the popification of the prog bands was complete when Yes hit number one on the Billboard charts with Owner of a Lonely Heart.
first waning of prog would also impact Pink Floyd, though in a completely different direction. In 1979, the band released their most successful album of all time, The Wall, a concept album partially based on Roger Waters' childhood and having lost his father in World War II before even meeting him, and the other half based on the madness of the original band leader Sid Barrett. The concept coalesced into the materialization of one character, a single protagonist in the story, who would build walls around him to protect him through life. The album was a smash success, reaching platinum status 23 times in the US and used as the basis for a follow-up movie featuring Bob Geldof cast in the lead as the protagonist. While incredibly successful for the band, it would also signify the beginning of the end of the second era of the group. The Wall was largely pushed and developed by Roger Waters, who increasingly became far more controlling and domineering in directing the band's production. Things came to a head with the follow-up album, which was called The Final Cut. Initially named Spare Bricks, the final cut originally was supposed to be somewhat of a continuation of The Wall, but as recording progressed, members of the band left the project, making the album more of a Roger Waters solo album in all but name. Whereas the other prog founders emigrated from the complexities and into pop, the release of the final cut caused the implosion of Pink Floyd. But a third era of the group would eventually arise out of the leadership of guitarist Dave Gilmore with the release of A Momentary Lapse of Reason. The first wave of progressive rock would come full circle with Pink Floyd, but in the face of this, the final cut has since gathered a cult following and remains a favourite among fans of Roger Waters. Four years after the final cut and following years of legal wrangling between Roger Waters and David Gilmour, Pink Floyd came back to life close to the end of the decade with a new era and a new style. Following a momentary lapse of reason, the David Gilmour-led Floyd had an incredible successful tenure based mainly on the band's legacy and live album releases. 
Meanwhile, Roger Waters continued his progressive concept album vision, beginning with the pros and cons of hitchhiking, followed by Radio Chaos, and finally with 1992's Amused to Death, his last concept album released to date. saw a decline for prog. Floyd was gone, the other founders were smitten with the pop of prog light. Punk rock had emerged as a musical response to the intricacies of prog, reclaiming the simpler rock and roll roots that prog itself was a musical response to. There was some rising work to come from the 1980s though. Bands such as Marillion, Asia, IQ, Magellan, Porcupine Tree and Echolin would emerge as part of a second wave through the decade, and while the progressive works were not as numerous as in the creative prime as the first wave, there was music there to keep the prog rock devotees satiated. However, progressive rock would undergo a major resurgence with its third wave in the 1990s, and the initial inklings of the re-emergence would actually be previewed by a band largely regarded as alternative metal. Faith No More initially found their formative steps in funk metal, but when musician Mike Patton, originally from avant-garde shock rockers Mr. Bungle, joined them in 1989, his experimental tendencies pushed the band into more peculiar territory on their 1992 Angel Dust album. Thanks to Mike Patton's work with Mr. Bungle, Faith No More and his other projects, Prog got a shot in the arm from his own musical evolution, following in the same footsteps as that of Frank Zappa.
It was around this time that Porcupine Tree began accelerating their rise and output of music. While their major successes would arise in the 2000s, the Stephen Wilson-led group would take major formative steps in the 1990s, releasing albums like Signify and Up the Downstair. But as the 2000s advanced into major success for the band, Porcupine Tree would begin bridging the gap between the wide ranges of prog styles by this stage, including that of metal. Their concept album from 2007, Fear of a Blank Planet, is largely deemed a masterpiece, and their most recent album from 2009, The Incident, features a song called Time Flies, containing many sequences that pay homage to the original and traditional prog rock of the 1970s, but also highlighting that there was more to come in the future, as far as progressive rockers were concerned. More bands continue to claim the torch for the future of progressive rock. Groups like Big Big Train, The Mars Volta, Spock's Beard and Anathema persist in pushing the complexities and journeys of prog, while other bands like Carnival and Coheed and Cambria are enjoying great successes. Additionally, websites like Bandcamp have a burgeoning prog movement with countless new bands adding new material daily for both streaming and download. As far as the current and future scenes of prog rock are concerned, perhaps the most productive output comes from an artist that runs the gamut from the styles of early experimental avant-garde noises of the 60s to the modern sonic envelope pushing of the progressive metal bands. Once a member of Guns N' Roses, solo guitarist Buckethead has to have the most voluminous influence on modern progressive rock, having released over 130 albums since 1992. In 2014 alone, Buckethead released 60 albums. 
Considered a part of prog rock and prog metal, Buckethead has perhaps the largest catalogue of music exploring the boundaries of technical musicality. Buckethead is actually and truly quite symbolic and evocative of the original rise of progressive metal in the sense that, like his musical ancestors, he bridges the gap between progressive rock and metal. The first group to accomplish this and develop the genre known as prog metal was, of course, Rush. But before they would release their debut album in 1974, there would be another band that would build the bridge between progressive rock and the origins of Rush. Uriah Heep counted a part of both the progressive movement and the early metal movement formed in 1969. While the band was swept along with the original Big Four era of music being contemporaries of Led Zeppelin, Deep Purple, Blue Cheer and Black Sabbath, their lengthier examinations of complexity and propensity to focus on fantasy subjects lyrically fit them perfectly into that of the creative peak of this first wave of progressive rock. In fact, their involvement to both scenes was so significant, they would be the fifth of the original Big Four if it was an original Big Five. In fact, fuck it, let's retcon that right now. The original Big Four is now the original Big Five. Welcome aboard, Heap.
With Uriah Heep and Deep Purple and Led Zeppelin, there was a noticeable prog influence on the metalers out there during the time of early metal. But as time proceeded, many future musicians were finding relevance not only in the complex explorations of prog, but also in the solid punch of metal. Meshing these inspirations together, it would be Rush that would arrive in 1974 with their debut album, combining elements of prog with early metal and blues rock drawing on the heritages of groups like Genesis and Pink Floyd on one side of the coin and of groups like Uriah Heat and Blue Cheer on the other. Joined by drummer Neil Peart in 1974, after their first album, Rush would begin taking steps into more progressive territory with their albums Fly By Night and Caress of Steel, with the songs becoming more rich and multifaceted in their technical approach and their presentation. Their early formative steps would making them one of the most significant bands of all time in progressive music, or though my co-host from the Blendover podcast, Ter Javera, asserts that they are the most significant. Did you also see the uh, I Am I Sent You about the error that you made? Yes. What was this about again? <laughs> you made a really big mistake regarding Rush. And I just felt that I had to correct it for you. Oh, what's this correction? What's this all about? Well, you said that they were one of the most important progressive bands out there when they are undoubtedly the most important. So you oh. should you should get around to fixing that. Oh, can't just, have you dis, can't have you dissing Rush like that. Yes, because I'm sure it's going to be an easy edit and re-up. <laughs> yeah, it'll just be in and out, right? <laughs> That's Podcast what she editing, said. It's, it's fucking simple, right? <laughs> In 1976, Rush would release an album that would be the cornerstone of their career, with one side of the album devoted to a singular concept and clocking in at over 20 minutes long. The epic 2112 would forever cement Rush as the founders of the genre that is now known as progressive metal.
During the 70s, as the bands of the first wave of progressive rock transitioned into the more pop-sensible prog line, it was Rush that kept pushing the envelope of intricacies in music, and that kept progressive music alive for the prog fans. Following 2112 with A Farewell to Kings and Hemispheres, Rush was responsible for presenting the rich possibilities of progressive to metalheads, while introducing the harder-edged and heavier salt of metal to prog fans. Other bands of a more metal or hard rock connection would begin following in the footsteps of Rush. Coming from an early metal and blues rock heritage, one of the bands responsible for the later emergence of album-oriented rock would similarly become one of the most successful groups that also worked to bridge the gap between progressive rock and progressive metal. While mostly known for their popular song Dust in the Wind, Kansas would become more well-known in the 2010s for a song that would regularly accompany significant episodes of the popular TV series Supernatural. Carry on my wayward son There'll be peace when you are done Lay your weary head to rest Don't you cry no original bands from the first wave, Rush would also transition into a style shift that was akin to the prog-like migrations of Genesis and Yes. 
With the album Permanent Waves in 1980, the band began moving into more radio-friendly and commercially viable material. The divisive reactions from some of the fans to the album at the time were comparable to the reactions of Metallica fans to the release of the Black Album in 1991. Some felt that Rush had sold out, if you will, though others welcomed the shift, noticing that the band's technical proficiencies were becoming more focused and concise in shorter songs. While the reactions were divided, the group continued in this direction into the 1980s, achieving major commercial success and ensuring a long-lasting legacy with the release of songs such as Limelight and Tom Sawyer. As the original prog giants had morphed into prog light, Rush had moved into more radio-friendly material, and Kansas transitioned into AOR, later rebranded as adult-oriented rock. It appeared for the prog fans at the time that their chosen musical style they loved was about to die out. And even though Marillion and Asia would bolster the scene, it gave the impression that progressive music was on the decline, becoming eclipsed by the likes of punk rock and new wave and pop. But a new generation of progressive was on the rise, predominantly inspired by Rush, the original Big Five of early metal and the artistic peak of the first wave of prog, bands like Queensryche and Sabotage would emerge in the 1980s, affirming and consolidating the fact that progressive metal was here to stay. And with the subsequent rise of Dream Theater and the works of bands like Tool, Faith No More, Mastodon and others, 
the subgenre would prove to be one of the most popular among metal fans. But that is a story for another time. Because now it's time for a prehistoric mosh. You may have noticed on our couple of prog episodes so far, some of the most important bands to emerge from progressive music are the ones that bridge the gap between a number of styles in the evolution of the genre overall. One of the first groups to do so was Pink Floyd. Originating from the avant-garde experimentalism of art rock, Floyd was the group that bridged the gap between the psychedelic era of rock and the rise of progressive rock. And yet, they've also had a significant influence on heavy metal on the whole as well. On their 1969 soundtrack to the movie More, the band recorded one of their heaviest songs of all time. While the Roger Waters pen tune is an accurate example of the band transitioning from psychedelica to prog, it is most certainly, without a doubt when you hear it, a heavy metal song. From the album More, it's called The Nile Song. Let's take a listen. Let's have a glance at this week in metal news. Legendary musician and songwriter Kim Fowley has died following a long battle with cancer. Fowley began his own music career during the 1960s, but was most well known for his songwriting with bands like Kiss, 
and for also spearheading the formation and management of the Runaways. He was 75 years old. Reports surfaced last week of a stabbing at a cattle decapitation gig in California. The assailant was a little unhappy about the pit, so his solution was to take out a knife and stab another person in the neck. Moshers in the crowd collectively attacked the stabby bastard, knocked him unconscious, and had him removed from the venue. Both the victim and attacker were hospitalized, and the knife-wielding bandit is expected to be charged. The band released a statement following the gig, urging their fans to leave weapons at home. The Black Crows are officially no more. Founding member and guitarist Rich Robinson has announced that the group has disbanded, seemingly due to unrealistic ownership demands from his brother Chris Robinson. Rich stated, I love my brother and respect his talent, but his present demand that I give up my equal share of the band and that our drummer for 28 years and original partner Steve Gorman relinquish 100% of his share, reducing him to a salaried employee, is not something I could agree to. This week seems to be the big announcement period for shows, first up with Mastodon and Clutch announcing they will be teaming up for a co-headlining tour. The date's currently scheduled kick-off in Minnesota in April to wrap at the end of May in Ohio. More dates may be added if the tour progresses well. The big announcement this week was the lineup for Rocklahoma, also scheduled for the end of May, specifically the Memorial Day weekend. Known for its wide mix of bands in its lineup, the 2015 schedule for the prior Oklahoma Festival is of no exception, including Linkin Park, Tesla, Godsmack, Slayer, Volbeat, Breaking Benjamin, Papa Roach, Hailstorm, Queensryche, Live, Anthrax, Ministry, Apocalyptica, Periphery, and much more. Pre-sales are currently underway at rocklahoma.com. James Labrie of Dream Theatre has announced that the band will be entering the studio in February to record their next album. The band is expecting to have the new album released in the fall of 2015 via Roadrunner Records. There's a new Randy Rhodes tribute album in the works entitled Immortal, and a preview has surfaced with Rolling Stone, releasing a cover of Crazy Train by Serge Tankian and Tom Morello. Immortal Randy Rhodes' The Ultimate Tribute is scheduled to be released on March 3, and the Crazy Train preview is currently available for streaming at SoundCloud. Scott Wheeland has formed another new band, this time with Guns N' Roses guitarist Bumblefoot and disturbed bassist John Moyer. Dubbed Art of Anarchy, the new band is being advertised as a supergroup, while MetalSucks.net has labelled it as Velvet Revolver 2.0. Meanwhile, Wheeland will also be performing at Rocklahoma with his other new band, The Wildabouts. Motley Crue has announced the final dates of their last tour and have coincided the announcement with the release of a new single called All Bad Things. The song and its music video are reflective of the band's career, but the video completely ignores the 1994 era of the band with the self-titled album on which John Karabi appeared. The song is now available for download on iTunes, but I think you should all check out the 1994 album with Krabi instead. Kiss's collaboration with Japanese pop act Mamoiro Clover Z has been released online with a music video that looks like a strange anime mashup of some kind. The video is currently available on YouTube, indicating that Gene and Paul are more than happy to cash in on that baby metal vibe that seems to be pretty popular right now. All of our news links this week come from the Metal News subreddit and can be found listed at heavymetal666.com. If you come across any cool news, please share it with us at reddit.com slash r slash metal news. On the next Heavy Metal Historian... 
We return to inspect the legacy of punk rock and the sway it held over the future of heavy metal. Specifically, we turn to the second wave of punk rising from the United States. From the horror punk of the Misfits to the influence of Henry Rollins and Black Flag, to the political edge of Dead Kennedys and the emergence of Straight Edge from Minor Threat and Fugazi, we turn to the advancement of a punk subgenre that would play a crucial role in the future of heavy metal. We take a look at the emergence of hardcore. Keep up with us by subscribing to the show at iTunes and Stitcher. Follow us on Facebook or at MetalPodcast666 on Twitter. Send us a message if there's a topic you'd like Heavy Metal Historian to look into or report on, or if you have questions that you would love to have answered. You can also find me with Terra Chavara on The Blendover Show, bringing you the news that the news isn't covering over at Blendover.com. We'll see you on the next Heavy Metal Historian, Hails and Horns, and until next time, Progressive Rock still lives on with new bands pushing the genre even further every year. And in this modern age, there are a lot of bands that push the margins while also trying to maintain the connections between progressive rock and progressive metal. One such band from Austin, Texas, Earth Diver, considers their material to be within both styles of prog, incorporating dissonant experimentation and accompanying string ensemble work along with acoustic passages interspersing a brutal metallic crush. From their latest EP on Bandcamp called Puncture, here's the song Cross by Earth Diver as our closing headbanger. Yeah.